Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Tez News Podcast with me, Dan Worth. First up, I'm joined by senior journalist at Tez, John Roberts, as we look through some of the most interesting news stories on the site this week. John, welcome to the podcast. Great to chat with you. And we're going to be talking about a few stories from your news desk this week. And we're going to start with some very interesting um, and very insightful stories about Send and where we are with that. Because obviously we hosted our latest educational insights report has gone out this week, looking at the Send element of the education sector. As part of that, we run a, a webinar with some real sort of top people taking part, offering their views, their thoughts, concerns, where they think the opportunities lie to improve this area of education. You've watched that webinar, written a few stories from that. Um, tell us a bit more about those and, and why you think they're really, they sort of you know, caught your ear and led you to write them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the, the panel discussions are really interesting, I think, and, and in part because they had voices from, from kind of different angles from within the sector. So we had David Thomas, who's a, both works for a multi-academy trust, but is also a senior DfE advisor and had worked on the Sand Green paper. And then we had leaders from multi-academy trusts within both mainstream and the specialist sector, people with local authority background. And so it was a really, really, really good discussion. Um, we pulled out a couple of things as news stories, as you said, and both of them kind of led on comments from, from David Thomas, who was the, uh, the Department for Education Advisor, and who I think that played a, played a role in putting the, the Senate Green paper together. The first one, and, and it's something he said, but it was also something a couple of the multi-academy trust leaders said as well, was that there's, there is a need for a shift in some school leadership team's approach to, to inclusion. He said that there's a, a problem that everyone would accept exists, that inclusion isn't important to all schools and to all school leadership teams. And in order for special educational needs provision to change and in order for the reforms to be a success, they need to uh, achieve a kind of a culture shift in that. Um, now, then Seamus Murphy, who's a, a multi-academy trust leader in Kent, then kind of spoke about his experience. Um, and he said that um, they had had examples of pupils who'd come to them having been told that their needs couldn't be met in other mainstream settings. Um, and effectively, his trust had sort of got a reputation for being kind of child-centered and putting the child's needs first. But as such, they'd seen their SEND profile in two of their secondary schools increase by 10% in two years. Um, which is uh, an issue you flagged up in a really interesting piece earlier this year around this idea that there's almost becoming some schools that are like magnets for, for SEND provision within mainstream because they're seen as being inclusive while where others in the locality aren't. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that piece. You're right, it does sound like that's the trend, isn't it, that we're seeing and it's the, and it's the problem and as, you're, as you're outlining from this, the webinar. Yeah, absolutely. But it's really interesting to hear a Department for Education kind of advisor acknowledge it as well and sort of say that that's something that the government really needs to think about. Now, the green paper that came out um, the end of March has a number of proposals that kind of show the government is intending to make the school system more inclusive. It's talked about giving, um, giving councils more powers to be able to direct academies within their, their authority area to admit particular pupils. Uh, that, that Currently, that's not something they, they do. Um, and I think it's, um, I guess part of the intention is to try and make the system more joined up. And that was certainly the, the message that, that, that David Thomas had. The other really interesting bit around that, in, in, the, in that kind of space, when they're having that discussion, was um, the, David Thomas highlighted that the department's concern that surveys that they have show that in mainstream schools, teachers are reporting being less confident year on year in dealing with pupils with SEND. 
And he said that the department was trying to get a, get a handle on, on why that was happening. Um, Susan Douglas, who is a chief executive of a, a trust of specialist schools, suggested it, he showed the need for, for more training, both, both CPD and initial teacher training. And there was also a discussion about the, the extent to which a culture shift in schools might also need kind of leadership training, leadership training for those people who are kind of responsible for schools and trusts to think about their responsibilities for SEND pupils. Because one of the things that the Green Paper talks about is a new qualification for SENCOs as a, as a way of improving SEND provision. But what Susan Douglas said in, in the debate was that whilst that's welcome, she doesn't necessarily think that's the most crucial element that the system needs. And what we really need is for all teachers in mainstream schools to be able to teach children with SEND well. If, we, if the government's ambition is that um, less pupils will need education, health and care plans and that the mainstream system will become more inclusive, yeah. then I think there's a sense that perhaps training is, 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 is what's needed as well. And so there was a big discussion about that. Yeah, well, I've certainly heard people say that you know initial teacher training at the moment. I think you you know some if you train in certain areas of that, you you only receive the equivalent of like you know one day of training in, in send. You know, um, and and how on earth can that can that prepare you for then when you work with pupils with the you know variety of needs and complexity of needs, and it's just not enough, is it? And like I say, if we're seeing a rise in healthcare plans and and diagnoses, which in one level is great because we're getting better at identifying where who has a need, but if we haven't got the teachers to step in and, and help them the right way. And they're not trained and they're not confident and as that data suggests they're not there's a there's a there's a disconnect there that we need we need to fix which like you're saying susan douglas sort of sounds like she sort of you know typified that view in the in this panel discussion very much so and then just to pick up on on another thing you've just said there the other kind of key story that we pulled out from the discussion was about education health and care plans so they're obviously they've been sort of underpinned send system since since 2014 when the last last set of reforms were brought in and the idea is that this kind of brings together education, health and care sectors to define a pupil's needs and then agree a way in which they're going to be met. Now, there's two kind of issues with that. One is, as children with SEND have struggled in the mainstream setting, there's been increased demand for EHCPs, which means increased waiting times. Um, and there's this idea, I think, that it's almost become as a, like a golden ticket, the only way a parent feels like they can ensure their child's needs will be met, will be if they get this plan. But then there's also concerns about the actual quality of plans themselves. We've reported on that previously. But David Thomas, the DfE advisor, um, basically, he highlighted that there isn't enough data in the system. The government doesn't know enough. So there's nothing that measures how well EHCP targets are being met. So you'll, you, you can get a sense of the system going badly through increasing number of SEND tribunals, or Ofsted and the um, Care Quality Commission do uh, send area inspections, and more than half of those have had kind of critical judgments. But nevertheless, um, yeah, Mr. Thomas said, you know, the, the government doesn't have data on when, whether a pupil's plans are being met. And one of the things they're trying to do through this um, new green paper is standardise the HCP process so that it's a lot more um, uniform across the country and digitise it. So because I think the other Thing. The other sense is that it's, um, it's essentially been left to local partnerships and local authorities to kind of develop a way of doing this. And you've almost run the risk of having 151 different sense systems up and down the country. Um, and they obviously want to kind of standardise that. Um, and as part of that, he kind of indicated that, that it would be worth the government having some oversight of whether targets are met or not. Um, I think that's an incredibly complicated and thorny thing to do because 
because targets aren't sta- the targets aren't standard within the EHCPs, and sometimes they can be quite um, vague and and not necessarily sort of like well defined, and sometimes they're not time sensitive. So, but it's a really interesting thought that we've got this thing that kind of underpins the whole system, this, these EHCP plans, and yet the government have kind of come to realise that they don't have any intelligence about uh, at a local level whether yes. the, what's in the plan has actually been implemented. And so you're sort of saying that, yeah, that, that, that was something that they, they would look to do. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting story, that one. Definitely worth people having a read of. Uh, it's got the, the headline, quite, quite eye-catching headline, DFE and DARP on send targets, admits advisor. And then, as you say, the story sort of breaks it all down. And I myself wrote something about the um, the move to sort of standardise and digitise education and healthcare plans. And, and again, like the sort of concerns that threw up. And But, but you know, some people saying, yeah, some forms are eight pages long, some are 40, you know, when they're filled out. And it, and if you're in a school with m- multiple local authorities overlapping and you've got these different forms turning up, it can be a real, very difficult for, for sort of the relevant right stuff to read through them and understand what they're saying when they're all so different. Um, and again, like not having the data does seem like a, ne- a negative because if you don't have data, you're kind of flying blind, so to speak. But as you're saying, how do you create targets and, uh, and, and sort of metrics that work and don't just create more accountability pressure or don't end up being just, you know, just creating a sort of a, a window you have to get through by a certain time that really doesn't work for that pupil, like you're saying, because they have, the level of need is just different and very messy area, but also important. And so, as you're thorny, as you think, is a good word for it because it, it you can't ignore these things. So you have to sort of you have to go for it and try and fix it. So, yeah, two really interesting stories from that webinar. Um, definitely worth checking out. And of course, you can also download the the report, the send report. If you just Google Tes Educational Insights, you should be able to find it. Download it. It's free of charge. Hopefully, a really useful sort of breakdown of, of all the issues in the SEND sector. We'll look at international as well. We'll look at Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Really comprehensive and, and hopefully a really good document for people. Um, one other quick story we're going to look at this week is by Callum Mason, who looked at the issue of sort of the cost of living crisis, which is, again, is a, is a sort of, you know, something that we, we're hearing a lot about in, in the world at large, as we know, interest rates and all that and inflation, but in education too. And he talked to a, a, a range of people and found that, you know, for many working in schools is not financially particularly that viable. And, and even like going to work in supermarkets is potentially better pay and, and less stress, as someone said. Head teachers admit they're struggling with vacancies. I mean, John, again, you, you've been covering the education sector for longer than I have. I mean, is this a sort of, is this quite notable for how bad it's getting that people are having to sort of genuinely look at careers outside education because of the cost of living crisis? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a really great piece by Callum. Definitely well worth reading. He's spoken to a lot of, lot of voices both at kind of a support staff level all the way up to kind of CEO level. Um, but it is, it's just a really striking piece because I think we've, we've already seen, as you say, the idea that the education sector is being hit by the cost of living crisis, you know, bills going up, energy bills going up, inflation, um, and then some schools are having their overheads go up markedly as a result of that. But this is Sarah showing that they're also, it's got the potential to create a new a new element to the kind of recruitment and retention crisis because, as you say, the staff on, on, on lower-paid wages in some support roles can be on starting salaries of less than 20000 and on term-time contracts. And quite a few that spoke to Callum were just, well, I'm literally struggling to make ends meet. And so, yeah, I can, I can earn similar money in a supermarket role, which I think will be less stressful and will be 52 weeks a year. And so, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge, I think, for the sector. And obviously, schools' budgets are, uh, are pressed and so they're not in a position to kind of, one of the, the, the head teachers that kind of spoke to said, we're in a competitive market and we can't compete. Um, but there's, you know, it's, 
it is, it's both a piece that's kind of harrowing because it makes you think about people working in education, struggling to make ends meet, but it also is something that I think has significant consequences for the sector if the kind of fears that it talks about are realised and we lose a significant chunk of support staff who are essential to the functioning of a school, you know, sometimes essentially in terms of providing one-to-one support for pupils needed. Um, if the sector loses a, you know, a chunk of these people because it's not viable for them to do the job, that's, that's, a, that's another kind of recruitment and retention crisis or another element to the recruitment and retention yes. crisis that, um, that I think there's a, a big concern about anyway. Because in a, in a funny way, COVID sort of put the normal economy on hold to an extent. And so the picture around recruitment and retention and around spending as well has been a little bit unique to the circumstances within the pandemic. But now we're kind of potentially moving to a more, I don't know whether post-pandemic is quite the right term, but a new phase of it. Um, there, I think there is a real worry that both the pandemic, the impact it's had on schools have had to work through this incredible time, and now the economic pressures are making schools potentially a less attractive place to work at various different levels. And it's a, yeah, it's a really eye-opening piece and definitely well worth a read. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you, you've summed it up brilliantly there, so um, I, I won't add any more. But um, as you say, worth checking out. Um, again, that's got a pretty eye-catching headline of support staff leave for supermarket jobs as cost of living crisis bites. Um, so again, a really good story about Callum, as you say. John, thank you for joining us for the podcast. Great to chat with you. Some really great content we can talk through there and um, look forward to talking to you again in the future, no doubt, as, as more great stories develop. Thanks, Tom. Next, I'm joined by Gronya Hallahan, Senior Analyst at TES, as we look through some of the stories covered on the analysis desk this week. Hi, Gronya. Welcome back. Great to chat with you as ever. And we've got a very eclectic mix of pieces we're going to look at in our section. So let's dive in with um, a piece actually that I wrote, which came out last weekend. Um, but I was, I think it's a very interesting area, which is sustainability, because the government announced their sustainability strategy recently for schools. And a big element of that was this new GCSE. But actually, within that were some other things. One thing that really caught my eye was they want every setting to have a sustainability lead by 2025. And when I looked into that, it's a role that I think a lot of people will want to do because it's about, about how your school estate can become more energy efficient, can work to reduce carbon use, can become more, more sort of sustainable, can get engaged pupils in this activity, lots of great stuff. But it's a hell of a lot of work. You know, this isn't a small sort of, oh, I just tack that on the side of my normal job. Someone who does this has got to realise it's a lot of work. I found some people that do this kind of work. They love it. They've done some amazing things, no doubt about it. But yeah, a big, a big job. Um, I just, and again, again, you've read it. What do you think of it? Some of the things that I found out. And again, you've worked in schools. I suspect you also the same. There will be an appetite for people to want to do this. But again, do you think the workload element is a big consideration that we have to sort of be aware of? And like you say in the piece, it really depends on the size of the school and the expertise of the staff that are there. You might be really fortunate that you have people on your staff and on your SLT who are experts in this area already because it's something that they're interested in or something that they've worked on before they went into education. But I think the point that was made about moving it to a mat level role, that's what really struck me. I was like, yes, and actually I think we should even go further than that. So one of the suggestions was that there should be somebody in the trust who has this role and they oversee it for all of the schools to sort of, you know, reduce the workload, share good ideas, share good practice. Often schools in mats are geographically close to each other, so we'll have similar context to be able to draw on, you know, um, shared resources and you know, put these ideas about sustainability into practice in the schools and their trust. But, you know, you're reading through and some of the ideas talks about moving to paperless systems and using iPads and there's, there's a bit of me that just goes, 
But is that more sustainable? Like the co- like, yes, we're not printing as much paper, but what about the cost of running an iPad? Like that's not. These are these are big, complicated topics, and I think asking schools and expecting schools to be experts in this is is a bit of a stretch. And I think going to a mat level and having somebody who who runs it in a mat, but also having guidance even higher up, helping those mat leaders make the right choices because schools. The school's main job is to educate the children and distracting from that and getting getting to estate management, I think, requires more help and always more funding. Yes. Well, yeah, the and, and the, the mat thing is really interesting that you mentioned that because, as you say, the mat level makes a lot of sense and the government wants schools in mats. It sees the benefits. It explicitly sort of says in, in the white paper that, that, you know, the economies of scale or, you know, the... the, the that you can achieve in many ways. And yet, in the sustainability strategy, there was literally no reference to multi-academy trusts. Apparently, someone who was at the speech Nazim Zahawi gave at the Natural History Museum said he never mentioned it once. The transcript from the government shows he never mentions it. Surely, as you're, as you're saying, and as I, as I referenced in the piece, these are the institutions that absolutely would be bang on to, to do this work because they can say, right, all schools, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, we're going to buy solar panels in and because we're buying 100, it's going to cost as much less than if you were buying 10 individually. But no, no reference to it. Now, I, I did ask the Confederation of Schools Trusts about this, and they sort of said, well, they kind of said they think it's explicit, implicit anyway that Matt's will be doing this. And they're probably right. You know, Matt's will step into this in a way and do it themselves because they can save money. They can, you know, they can see it's on the government agenda. But why you wouldn't specify that in, in the thing is, is a bit odd. Um, the other thing I thought you, you touched on that I thought was worth mentioning as well is about this sort of knowledge element. And um, one thing the government did confirm to me when I wrote this is that, that every setting would receive funding for one person to go on what's called carbon literacy training, which is a new thing. I've not heard about it, but it effectively enables you to, you know, as, as, the, as it implies, to learn about the world of carbon decarbonisation, energy efficiency, which I suppose might address your point there about, yes, we're going paperless, but our iPad's not, you know, just, just replace the amount of energy and maybe they'll be able to actually know because the amount to, to you know, print 10,000 documents every week versus running 100 iPads is much less. I don't know. But that's the kind of thing. I did speak to the Carbon Literacy Trust, who um, are one of these people that have sort of set a lot of this up and, and they're consulting with government on how it should all work. Um, they're obviously really excited to see this. So, But again, it's, it, it, it strikes me as, again, it's like a thing. It's like you said, it's very interesting. It's very sort of like schools will be kind of, they'll always step in when they need to. But is it really for, for an individual school to add this another massive thing on their workload? But I suppose maybe with the number of schools in the system, you have to have a little bit of, sort of push down as well as top up kind of approaches, which again, like there's a, I spoke to a lady called Wendy Litherland up in the north somewhere and near Blackburn, I think. And, and she was doing, she's done great work in this area for like 15 years at her school and she's met what sounds like great things. So it shows it can be done, but I think hopefully the piece gets across. It's, it's not an easy thing. Um, but yeah, definitely worth, if you're interested in that world of um, sustainability or you're thinking about getting involved or you are a leader at school who's thinking, that's another thing I've got to start thinking about piece is titled tough task ahead for new school sustainability leads you can find it on the analysis section of the website next story we're going to look at is one by you Gronya. so plenty of um good stuff for us to talk about of our own content here um which is you have looked at the upcoming 2022 sats at key stage one which are coming to an end in the next couple of years ahead to be replaced by the reception baseline assessment um, and you spoke to a raft of primary school teachers and head teachers about firstly kind of looking at how they actually run the key stage one sats. Because if you're working with young children here, you can't just say, right, kids, you're doing an exam and sit them in rows and tell them to be silent for three hours, can you? That's not going to work. So 
some really interesting insights there we'll touch on. And then also the fact they're coming to an end, you sort of ask them, what do they think about that? Are they going to miss them? Are they glad to see the back of them shortly? Is the reception baseline, baseline assessment a good replacement? Um, let's start with the first bit briefly on, on how people run them. A big diversity of people, uh, of ideas. And I think it shows there isn't like a single right way to do this. It's probably what's ever best for your setting and your pupils. The guidance makes it really clear that teachers can use their own judgment about how they're going to actually administer these tests. And I always find it interesting reading through these guidelines and thinking, I wonder how schools do that? Like, what do, what do they actually do? And I know from my time talking to primary school teachers, schools do generally take a very different approach. Went and spoke to lots of different leaders. And yep, the approaches that people take are really interesting. So I spoke to one school where they literally just see what the mood in the room's like. Like, are the kids looking particularly sparky today? Let's get out the SATS papers. And then they sit and they do the papers. In other schools, it's much more regimented. They, they have a, a timetable and a calendar. And a lot of the time, when, when I was talking to the leaders, you, you discover this is often driven by the staffing needs in the school. So for smaller schools, having that sort of more ad hoc, like, oh, this is what we're going to do today. You look like you're interested in maths today. Everyone seems a bit sparky today. Maths it is. In other schools, the way they've got to staff it means that they just couldn't possibly do that. And it's more of a, a crazy rubrics cube of making sure everyone's in the right place at the right time. And there's the other issue of breaks. Now, Anybody who sat an exam knows sometimes you'll get to a point and just think, oh, I just need to stop. I just need to like go and look out a window and just stop for a minute. And I think if you felt like that as a teenager, imagine how seven-year-olds feel. So in the guidance, you're allowed to just stop the test and give them a chance to have a break and, and run, run around and do something different. Or you can just go ahead and sit the whole thing. And some of the leaders I spoke to said, actually, their kids, because the tests are so short and because they're quite, you know, straightforward tests, they don't give the kids the option of the break. They say that actually, you know, it's better just to get it all done and out of the way. And if you see, if you spot one child who looks like they need a break, then, you know, you adjust for that. But otherwise, they will just do them. And in other schools, I would love to do a test like this. So they're doing the test. They have got a scheduled break where they stop. And the kids can all get up and they go and do um, like a yoga workout and they come back and carry on with the test. And I think having that flexibility built in to know your children, know the cohort, it just makes you think, we're, you know, today everyone's talking about the digitalization of exams, how exams are going to change in the future. I hope those people making those decisions look at how Key Stage 1, they could learn a lot from how primary school teachers administer tests because the difference between a seven-year-old and a 15, 16 year old isn't that great. Or, you know, if this is a good way of testing students, this is a good approach to take. I think we should use some of this adaptability for the new plans that we're planning for GCSEs. That's a really interesting point. Um, and one that I think um, I, I'd be very interested. To hear. Yeah, that if people listen to this on social media, let us know what you think about that. Like, what could, what could the later exams learn from the, the early exams? But of course, in some ways, though, that opens up the other issue, doesn't it? Is that these or the way this all works, breaks and what time of day do you tell the parents and what do you tell the parents? Well, it's all going to go, isn't it, really? In a couple of years, we're going to be, we're going to be dealing with, as I tried to say fluidly a couple of times, the reception baseline assessment, um, which has already started as well. So some schools are, you know, schools are doing both of these things. Briefly then, what, 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 what are people saying about that change and, and what do you think that means for what your idea there about what we could learn from primary? It won't shock you to know that, that none of the leaders were that sad to see them go. <laughs> This is the, you know, the swan song for Key Stage 1 SATs and they're off 
they're out. And leaders say that, you know, they're not going to be missed. It's teachers know how best to assess the students. They didn't tell us anything they didn't know already. Schools already do assessments at the end of the year. This is, you know, this is a, a perfectly acceptable thing to happen. And what I found really interesting was how infusive they were about the baseline assessment, how much better they think the baseline assessment was. When a few months ago, when we were talking to people about the baseline assessment, they weren't that pleased with it. But it seems now that it's been done and it's out the way, actually, if you look at this rock and this hard place, well, having the baseline assessment in when they come up in reception, if that means we don't have to do key stage one sats anymore, so be it. Like, okay, it's not so bad then. And the baseline assessment is a much less intrusive test. The children genuinely won't realise that they're being tested. Whereas with the key stage one sats, you know, talking to the, the leaders in the piece, it's clear, it's really clear. The kids pick up on the fact that they're doing a test. The parents pick up on the fact they're doing a test. And they have to go to great lengths to really downplay it and to, to make sure they're not feeling anxious. Because we know if you've got high levels of anxiety, your exam performance goes down, it's not good for the child. We don't want small children to be worried about tests. So, you know, when you look at it in the big picture, bring on the baseline and hopefully this will be the last few years of having to do the key stage one sats. Mm, yeah. Well, as you say, like when we spoke about the reception baseline test with leaders earlier this year, they seemed a bit negative on it. But maybe, as you say, having now done the sats again, you're thinking, actually, this isn't, this is worse than the other one. And once we get just over doing one thing, it'd be better. But yeah, we'll see how that plays out. But um, but yeah, really interesting piece. Um, and hopefully good for primary leads and, and, and teachers and, and everyone, everyone in primary education to see that, that you know, the approach you take is, is okay. You don't, there isn't a one-size-fits-all and everyone does something different. And maybe there's some people out there going, oh, is this the best way of doing this? And maybe it probably is for your setting. You probably are. You know, you know your children, your, your classroom, your, your community best. You're probably doing it the best way you could. So I think that's a, a nice insight. I implore you, primary school teachers, forward it on to your secondary school colleague friends. <laughs> Let other people read and learn what the assessments look like in primary school because I think people would find it surprising to learn how assessments are done in primary settings. Definitely, definitely. And the final piece we're going to look at, um, and again, I said it was an eclectic mix, we're going to look at a piece from Mark Steed, who is an international head teacher based in Hong Kong, who always writes very interesting leadership pieces based on sort of own experiences and insights. Um, this is someone who's been a leader for, for 20 plus years, so he, you know, he's got a lot of good knowledge. And this one is a, is a nice piece looking at how leaders can claim back time in their diaries. You know, you can imagine, can't you, with meetings and then, you know, various stakeholders to deal with and, and you know, internal issues that arise and then thinking, oh, I've got to go meet parents about something. You know, oh, the workload, you can just imagine it stacks and stacks and stacks. That's not really good for anyone, um, but particularly in the leadership position where you might have to make very difficult decisions at points. He puts forward some really interesting ideas such as, you know, have a meeting-free day once a week, which is just time for you and or time to deal with the kind of things that rise up out of nowhere. You know, don't don't attempt to go to every parent event. I like, have to re realise you can't do that, certainly not long-term. You might be able to when, you, when you're new to a community. Have a schedule to your work, you know, things and. and even like audit the, the meetings you have, like are those meetings you go to every week, do they need to be there? Do they need to be an hour? Could they be half an hour? Some really good practical advice. I think leaders in all parts, not just international, obviously, in all parts of the sector could read and very quickly go, you know what, I need to do that. I could, I could change the way I work. What did you think of that? And are, have you got any good time-saving tips that you use that you think you should share? Because I've got a couple I'll share after, I think. Or have you got any to share? I like the scheduling your time, like looking at your time and planning in and booking in when you're going to do things. I thought that was really interesting. And the auditing meetings, I mean, I'm a bit obsessive about meetings and how 
you know, the unnecessary meetings that people have and how we can make them more efficient. And does everybody need to be there? Like taking a, like a check of does, like if you're halfway through a meeting and the people who were there for the start of the meeting and actually nothing's relevant to them anymore, let them leave. <laughs> Don't make people sit in meetings when it's not necessary just because you've got to sit there for the whole hour doesn't mean that everybody has to also join you. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting to like look look at things and not just say, oh, we do this because we've always done this. Let's do things because it's the best way to do it. And um, time-saving tips. I think my, my, my love of lists, if I've got a list and I can go through and tick it through, that's the, the best thing. And oh, we've mentioned this before. I do like putting things at the top of the list. That were easy to solve. Yeah, or that you've already done, then you can actually yeah, pre-tick them off. Yeah, <laughs> done that. Yeah, that's true. But I'm definitely a more. I think figuring out what sort of person you are. So I'm very much a morning person, and if I say I'm going to do things in the evening, or I'll do that, I'll do that later on. It's not going to happen. Like my expectations of my future self are so high. Oh yeah, warn you later on. She'll she'll definitely get that done. I won't. So no. knowing that and thinking right. My start of the day is my most efficient part of the day. Let's get everything done then. And that's my my tip. That's a good one. And, and mine, are very very briefly, are I think um, if you work in any form online, in digital, the digital world, by browsers, learn how to use a browser efficiently. No, like bookmark everything properly right at the top. You have to type every time it's just there to click. And if you learn your keyboard shortcuts, you control K for putting a link in, you know, um, control, what the other good ones, control J for refining your downloads. These little things, if you just learn them, they'd save you so much time. Um, rather than to go, you know, highlight some text, then find the little, you know, the little icon for highlighting text. Just go control K, bang, you can put your link in. And you add that up every year, how much time that must save you. I think I think it's huge. I think everyone in, in everyone in the world works should have browser training. That would be my thing if I became prime minister for the day or something like that. But anyway, I, I promise it would be an eclectic mix of things. We talked about sustainability, we've talked about SATs, exams, we talked about leadership, time-saving tips, browsers. What a good set of stuff. Obviously, we've also talked to John earlier. We talked about the SEND, um, stories we've done there from the Educational Insights Report. We looked at the cost of living crisis. Again, real breadth of coverage. Hope the listeners have enjoyed it. Hope you've let us know on social media if you have. And hopefully you'll be back with us again next week. 